0: Welcome, Welcome to the, to the East, East TraumaCast. Trauma Cast. This program was brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Now, on to the TraumaCast. TraumaCast.
1: Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. We're gonna to be talking about selective aortic arch perfusion, a really exciting topic that I think is cutting edge and has been cutting edge for some amount of time. So Dr. Manning and Dr. Morrison, we're very excited, I think, to jump right in.
2: Hi, I'm Lauren Dudas a Trauma and Acute Care Surgery from West Virginia University.
3: Hi, this is Brandon Parker, Assistant Professor of Surgery here at University
4: of Miami. Uh, Jim Manning, uh, University of North Carolina.
5: Uh, Johnny Morrison, uh, Associate Professor uh, at the University of Maryland. And
1: Megan Quintana from George Washington. I'm Assistant Professor of Surgery. Dr. Manning, do you want to start kind of explaining how, what is SAP and how it was developed?
4: I described SAP as being an extracorporeal perfusion technique for the treatment of cardiac arrest. It really developed it specifically for cardiac arrest, although it can potentially be used for impending cardiac arrest, just profound shock. And, uh, and I actually developed this pre-hospital care setting in mind, so I, I envisioned this being something we could use in the field to help stabilize and treat patients. What SAP involved is the use of a large lumen balloon occlusion catheter that is inserted into the thoracic aorta from a femoral artery. With balloon inflated, you have relatively selected out as fast as you can with a single catheter the heart and brain for perfusion during cardiac arrest. You then perfuse in an oxygenated solution, either it could either be stored alginate blood or some other non-blood oxygen carrier to perfuse the heart and the brain, reoxygenate the heart, get the heart beating again, while also hopefully perfusing the brain sufficiently to uh, allow for favorable neurologic recovery. And uh, aside from that, it's it's a technique that not only allows you to provide an oxygen carrier but also potentially other pharmacologic agents are beoactive accumulate profusion agents things like that to help uh, resuscitate and stabilize
3: so it's a really exciting uh, technology and it's something you know I was able to see in 2019 in one of your courses and have really kept it with me that there are certain cases that make me think of it one you know just yesterday we were discussing where I'm sure we've all seen these patients that uh, you know, arrive at a, you know, world-renowned level one trauma center, and despite all the amazing efforts that everyone in that institution can do in the multidisciplinary approach, you know, the patient just dies uh, of too much shock, and regardless of everything we're able to implement, and SAP is always something in the back of my mind where I'm thinking, would this patient who is in refractory cardiac arrest or refractory shock have benefited from a, a technology that's not widely available at this point? Um, and I think that that's Probably a niche that this can fill at some point, if you guys agree.
5: Uh, yeah, I, I think um, this is something that I think is very much on the horizon of of being realized in in human trauma patients. I think that when you're faced with trauma patients who have exsanguinated and uh, are in cardiac arrest, you've got two options. Uh, you can either try. And restart their heart and and uh, obtain uh, spontaneous circulation, or uh, you can go down a, another route where you deliberately um, indulge in um, tissue salvage, where or or kind of ischemia mitigation, similar to um, ECPR, uh, similar to uh, EPR, emergency preservation and, and resuscitation, where where you deliberately elongate their uh, window of um, salvage to ischemia. Um, I think that, that SAP occupies this kind of middle ground where you're racing to uh, obtain normal physiology in, in terms of a spontaneous circulation that then leads to um, some semblance of reperfusion and recovery. Uh, you know, the, the other option being is, is to go down that, that tissue preservation route. Um, my, my interest in SAP has largely come from kind of watching the, the ineffectiveness of reboa in the setting of cardiac arrest. Rabot, I would characterize as being a passive tool for afterload augmentation, where, uh, you know, I think we now use it to good effect in the setting of a spontaneous circulation, where you've got a patient who is either exsanguinating um, and they need some semblance of afterload support to give them, give the heart something to push against uh, while you resuscitate them. Whereas SAP uh, is, is that kind of next step once you've lost the spontaneous circulation, this allows you to perfuse the coronary arteries directly. Uh, and I can speak to some of the stuff that we've been doing in the lab, uh, but I'd be curious as to kind of Jim's view um, on your your comments about critical uh, trauma patients.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with everything that, that Johnny said. I think the, the, the problem with cardiac arrest resuscitation in trauma patients is that Unless you do a thoracotomy, you're fundamentally doing the same things you try to do with a medical cardiac arrest with CPR and IV epinephrine and things like that. The problem being is that blood flow with closed chest CPR is questionable or marginal sometimes, even at best in a uvolemic medical cardiac arrest patient. When you have an exsanguinated hypovolemic trauma patient, uh, it, it essentially has no effect whatsoever. You're not circulating anything. And so the problem is that you can't perfuse the heart well enough to get the heart beating again. And if you don't do that, it's game over. So the, uh, the, the, the value of SAP in this situation is that you can actually perfuse the heart, get the heart beating again. And uh, then at least it gives you the opportunity to get to the to operating theater, to, uh, to, to get to the ICU, whatever it is that's gonna be the next step to hopefully help your patient uh, survive the, their insult.
5: Yeah, I can't think of the number of thoracotomies that I've done over the last kind of I guess five years, I mean it's got to be in the kind of 50 to 100 category, and I can you know think of one or two meaningful survivors. Now I don't know if SAP is necessarily the tool that's going to fix that, but let me tell you what we do right now doesn't work. Um, we've been doing a, a lot of stuff in the lab where we've been looking at uh, open chest CPR and measuring the gradient between the aorta and the uh, right atrium. And then comparing that with SAP and using coronary perfusion pressure greater than 15 as being that kind of level that you have to perfuse at in order to have any chance of ROSC in the uh, coronary perfusion pressure of less than 15 is is 100% predictive of failure of ROSC. And your ability to achieve that with closed chest massages you know, you're spending a corner, you're spending your time with the coronary perfusion pressure uh, greater than 15, less than 10% of the time with um, uh, open chest cardiac massage. Uh, whereas SAP, it's, it's the other, it's the other way around. You're spending 90% of your time with coronary flow and, and coronary perfusion greater than 15. So, you know, I think if anything sets up the circumstances, hemodynamically, where your heart is um, receptive to ROSC, it's, it's SAP, I I got a question for Jim, if I may, and I, I, you know, um, (laughs) one of the, one of the things we've been kind of looking at is, is sat perfusate volume where, you know, you put your catheter up, you inflate your balloon and then you deliver your sap bolus of your oxygen carrier. In in my lab, we've been using whole blood. And, and, you know, we've just finished a study looking at five, 10 and 15 minutes of, of warm ischemia. And, and, one of the things that we're starting to see is distension of the right heart with uh, a large return of volume. What are are your thoughts on the trade-off between sap perfusate volume versus right heart distension and right heart um, dysfunction?
4: Uh, Fundamentally, my thought is that um, I would be willing to, to accept a bit of volume overload and right ventricular distension just to get the heart beating again, Because once they can get the heart beating again, especially when you've got endovascular catheters in, you can actually adjust volume fairly quickly, potentially, I mean, you could actually, you know, maybe even draw off a little bit of volume or something to try to to do things to actually alter this. Even though I do accept, now, the the thing, that say the difference between medical cardiac arrest and traumatic cardiac arrest is that if you have medical cardiac arrest, you're gonna be much more volume limited before you get into a volume volume overload situation. And a traumatic cardiac arrest that's due to a exsanguination that actual volume loading is initially therapeutic in that you get to restore the intravascular volume. However, you will eventually hit a limit and begin to cause volume overload. What I am hoping we will find when we get into clinical practice is that by the time we're hitting that limit of, you know, we're we're at the point of going from volume restoration to potentially volume overload, that we're actually getting the heart beating again. Now that may very well not be the case and post-resuscitation, even if you get ROSC, may very well see cardiac dysfunction of both left ventricular, right ventricular, and how we deal with that are some of the things I think we're going to have to try to learn as we actually start to use SAP clinically. Um, I, my, my thought still there was, I'd rather be dealing with that with a beating heart than have a non beating heart.
1: So I just want to pause for a second before we get into the really fascinating part, which is the clinical implications of SAP. Can we for our audience, you know, we're very familiar with things like thoracotomy, we're familiar with reboa, we're familiar somewhat with ECMO, probably some people to more degrees. Can you guys walk us through in plain layman terms, really how exactly perfusion of the coronary arteries happens with SAP and how these patients don't stroke out with the perfusion that you're providing directly to the heart and the and the brain? And kind of walk us through the very basic steps of exactly what this means is it like putting up a roboa catheter and and kind of just the very basics of this before we dive into the cool stuff no i, I if
5: if i um no i think that that's i think that's really important because i think jim and i have, have been jim has been close to this since its inception uh, i've been kind of getting close to this over the last couple of years therefore we, we do have a habit of you know it becomes a bit of a geek's convention um let me. What I'm keen to do, I guess, as a as a kind of knuckle dragging vascular surgeon, is, um, I guess, present my view and then then get Jim's take. Um, imagine the scenario of, um, let's say, a patient who's shot in, let's say, um, the the chest. Uh, so they get penetrating chest trauma. They've um, had signs of life on the scene. They've then been evacuated by the emergency medicine provider uh, to to come to the hospital. Um, and then you lose their output just as they, as they come in. Uh, to my mind, that's that's the patient that right now fits the bill for resuscitative thoracotomy. Um, and if you physiologically monitor coronary flow in a model of exsanguination, you see a kind of fascinating uh, process where your coronary blood flow is anti uh, until you start getting into the 30 to 40% shock category where then the the vigor of the cardiac contraction actually has the effect of pushing blood because your um, aortic pressure is so low. Um, Anyway, the outcome of that is is you end up in this curious paroxysmal pathophysiology of of exsanguination where you end up with reversal of coronary flow. And then once you hit a threshold of about 20 millimeters of mercury, 15 to 20 millimeters of mercury gradient, you then can't perfuse your myocardial beds um, adequately. to to drive a a spontaneous circulation. Um, And where where our therapies are now is ultimately, you have the uh, the situation where opening the chest, getting hemorrhage control, applying some sort of afterload support, likely with a clamp, and then pressing on the heart in in, in order to to drive that uh, coronary perfusion by emptying the ventricle and putting blood into the aorta, you're, you're reversing that lack of coronary flow you're, you're, you're reversing that effect of lack of coronary blood flow, and that then restarts myocardium. SAP turns that on its head, where the scenario that I foresee is that the young man still has his chest open, and you still embark upon hemorrhage control, and that can be whatever maneuver, uh, lung twist, uh, you know, some sort of emergency resection, et cetera, et cetera. But you're left with this heart that isn't necessarily uh, beating spontaneously, and that's where you put up your catheter, you, rather than pressing on the heart, you perfuse it directly with an oxygen carrier that fills your aorta, closes the aortic valve, delivers blood then in an antigrade direction. But because it's non-pulsatile um, in, in many ways, the kind of cheeky answer to the question of when's the best time to perfuse the heart, everybody thinks, oh, diastole. Actually, no, it's asystole because then you've got no resistance to, uh, to, to, to blood flow. And, and that's when you get your return of spontaneous circulation back. Um, And that's kind of the the story that I see. And then there are, there's a whole world of things, um, you know, around brain perfusion and around right heart overload that we can get into in due course, but that's kind of how I see it. Um, The the other side to this is, of course, somebody who's not shot in the chest, but maybe has an abdominal injury. Um, Do you even need to open the chest if you can do this with a catheter? Um, You know, that that opens up a whole world of... um, of of other options, but anyway, that that's kind of clinically, I think, how I see this, um, you know, getting into practice and, and how it works physiologically. And um, Jim, curious as to whether you have any thoughts.
4: Uh, uh, very nice description. I, I agree with everything that you said. Um, the the, uh, the one of the things I, I think that if say you compare, say SAP to, for example, say ribo where you're trying to, or 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 open chest uh, massage. In each of those instances, you're you are you're either doing close chest CPR with roboa or roboa and, and, and thoracotomy and squeezing the heart. You're trying to generate enough of an aortic pressure to generate that coronary perfusion pressure that Johnny has just described. The physiology of SAP is a little bit different in that you act, with the catheter and with the extracorporeal pump, you're actually generating the flow. You actually know what the flow is and the pressure is almost a little bit secondary. Uh, In the the reverse situation, or even in medical cardiac arrest, you're trying to generate pressure in order to create flow. With SAP, you actually know the flow. You can dial it in, I suppose, to what you want the flow to be into the aortic arch. Um, And then the pressure is a little bit secondary and somewhat dependent on the the residual vasoactivity of of the vasculature. But they're related, I'm not saying that they're unrelated, but, but uh, there is a bit more of, it is a perfusion technique, and one of the key things that you want to do in order to get good coronary perfusion is you have to close the aortic valve. And so the way we do SAP is to actually drive the pressure up enough to close the aortic valve and then with a little bit faster infusion, the bolus even, and then to, to infuse at a lower rate uh, for the most part, we've sort of settled in my laboratory. We had just been using about 10 mils per kilo per minute. We've used various infusion rates, even as low as seven. As long as you can keep the aortic valve closed, it it's functional. It, it will work. If you don't close the aortic valve, unfortunately, the path of least resistance is just the physics. It will tell you that it goes from the aorta to the left ventricle, left atrium. You can get a wonderful pulmonary venogram doing sap if you don't close the aortic valve. So that... That perfusion of the coronase is key, and, and Johnny's exactly right, is that the best time to perfuse with SAP is asystole, because you can perfuse continuously. It's not systolic, it's not diastolic, it's continuous. And just to kind of bring home the point about perfusion pressure versus perfusion, Typically, when we're doing SAP in the lab, we're looking at the aortic pressure is maybe in the 25, 30 millimeter mercury range. It doesn't sound very impressive, but yet if you do color microsphere flow of the myocardium, we're getting not just normal, but super normal perfusion to the myocardial tissue. And the reason we can do that, so to speak, beat mother nature at this is because the the heart doesn't have to beat in order to generate blood flow until the heart starts beating again. So... You're right. When when you can perfuse continuously, you have a much better chance of getting return circulation. Then you start to work with all those other problems that are going to occur once you've got return circulation.
3: You know, I think this technology is amazing. And you know, in my um, experience, just speaking to my colleagues, that not many of them are familiar with it. So I just wanted to you know summarize it. uh, um, You know, from what I'm hearing and from what I've seen in the brief exposure I've had. essentially you're gaining femoral arterial access, Um, you're placing this device, inserting a balloon or or inflating a balloon and then subsequently using a a pump to uh, force a bolus against the aortic valve and then a continuous flow um, with the goal of coronary perfusion and cerebral perfusion. Um, Would that be accurate?
5: I think think that's spot on and I I, again apologize that I think Jim and I kind of jumped the gun and get to the the coronary perfusion stuff. Um, You can either look at it, I think, as a more sophisticated Roboa technique where you're using exactly the same skills or you can look at it as a less sophisticated ECMO technique where you're kind of doing half of the uh, half of the ECMO cannulation. And I I think that both those analogies are useful because I think it provides the kind of current um, physician skill set, something that can easily be re-rolled to make SAP a reality. That I think one of the issues with any complex medical intervention that involves a whole bunch of, of skills, um, is if they're new skills, then you've got to train everybody in how to do it. And there's naturally a learning curve and, and problems that come with that. Um, Rabot kind of, of kind of has kind of blazed the trail uh, in that you know, we've now had years of, of courses about safe arterial access in the setting of shock, which is a real different ballgame to getting femoral arterial access um in. Um, you know, the elective uh, setting where you've got, you know, uvilemia and ultrasound and, and, and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, those skills are important, but, but shock adds uh, an extra element to it. Talking of that, uh, I think Jim has uh, some, some background of trying to do this pre-hospitally in, in terms of arterial access um, from things that he's done in the past. I'm curious if you can elaborate uh, on, on that.
4: Sure. And, 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 uh, and, and Johnny's right. I'll just begin first by saying that endovascular resuscitation has really um, evolved in two separate camps. It was on the medical cardiac arrest side, people started to look at these portable transport ECMO devices and saying, gee, we could use these for cardiac arrest. So that's how it began to, to, to catch on in the medical cardiac arrest world. Um, for trauma, especially based on the experience we saw in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, um, the, the the injuries that with non compressible torso hemorrhage, the need for hemorrhage control using, you know, Reboa um, was born. Curiously, because SAP is a balloon occlusion catheter in the thoracic order, it therefore looks an awful lot like Reboa. But yet it is really, it's a primarily an, an extracorporeal perfusion technique, sort of like ECMO. I've someone said, I sort of have a, SAP sort of has a foot in both camps. And so, and, and I think that's one of the benefits is that the vascular access is the same for, essentially, the vascular access is, is very similar or the same for ROBOA versus SAP versus ECMO. It's all femoral, at least in emergency settings, it's all femoral arterial venous access. So so that's, um, so it does allow for similar skills to be used by a set of provider to do emergency resuscitation, whether it's trauma or medical arrest. And I sort of have the vision that's where it's going. And what Johnny mentioned was, um, uh, it's hard to believe this is going to really date me seriously, um, but back in the, in the mid-1990s, um, I, I actually started working on SAP in 1989. That seriously dates did, did me. But in the mid-1990s, after looking at uh, chronic perfusion pressure and the potential uh, value of intra-aortic administered epinephrine, um, we actually, I actually set up a system in, in North Carolina, in my local area around Chapel Hill, where I could actually go into the field for, it was probably medical cardiac arrest, and place blindly thoracic aortic and central venous pressure catheters, to measure the coronary perfusion pressure, titrating in small doses of intra-aortic epinephrine. And the, the key thing there is just that you... Rather than just doing the same algorithm for every cardiac arrest patient, you actually had a parameter that meant something about coronary perfusion, and you could guide your therapy, change your CPR, change your doses of epinephrine, titrate in, intraordic, and stuff to get to a therapeutic effect. And, uh, and what we found was that in the, the, the 22 patients that seemed to be, you know, early enough in their cardiac arrest, it was worthwhile um, we actually got return of circulation in uh, 12, I think we got 12, 13 of the cardiac arrests actually got return of circulation, half of them made it to the hospital alive into the ICU. So it's, it's um, it, it just shows. And, and and I was doing that before, this is well before the days of uh, portable ultrasound, so it was just plain technique. All that really says is that, well, you know, if I could place catheters blindly in the field, um, now granted, these were generally euvolemic, medical cardiac arrest. These are not trauma patients, trauma that are profoundly hypovolemic. And in, in present day with ultrasound capability and stuff, I think it's reasonable to think that we can, you know, maybe even eventually after we really get the techniques down, move into the pre-hospital care setting with ultrasound and these techniques refined and be able to do some of these resuscitations in the field. I, I guess it's already been done by London. So that's a, that already shows, I mean, they're doing ROBOA in the field in London for five, six years now. So it's, um, it, it can be done. In yeah, London, they
2: have physicians in the field, though correct?
4: Yes, they do, All right. and, and and that's a challenge for the United States, and we have to figure out how to catch up with our international colleagues. That's my pitch.
5: I think the um, the the greatest burden of mortality is in that pre-hospital group, in that if one's going to seriously make a dent, um, you know, I think that a lot of the studies talking about trauma mortality and cardiac arrest mortality, you know, there's a hidden iceberg of what happens before hospital. Um, And while undoubtedly uh, there are many patients that have devastating injuries, multi-system devastating injuries, there is a minority that do exsanguinate that that would really benefit from some advanced care. And that's kind of the kind of theory behind the London model of their helicopter emergency medical service. And I think uh, that these interventions have to be seriously talked about and scaled for pre-hospital use. I, I worry that with a, with a rollout in in hospital, the number of patients who are potentially going to benefit from this may turn out to be relatively small and therefore people may lose enthusiasm, especially for the resources that are required to, to deliver this. Whereas the pre-hospital environment, I think we need better data uh, in order to kind of drive whether pushing this out there, which I, I think is the right thing to do.
3: Yeah, this is, uh, you know, as you said, it may not be for everyone. Certainly not for for every trauma patient. And you know, I think that's where we get into, you know, pushing the envelope. And you know, when we have patients that are not surviving, when we're doing everything we can, you know, this may be the tool in the toolbox. Uh, what do you guys see as that primary patient? So, you know, if tomorrow you're on call and and you have, um, you know, SAP available to you, what is the patient that you think is going to benefit most from this and, and how would you you know deploy that? And has it been used at all in any uh, human models or, or anything like SAP?
1: And I think important right now to discuss both medical and trauma, really.
5: I, I think to my mind, to speak to the trauma piece, um, it is, I think, penetrating injury where patients have had um, signs of life and they have actively exsanguinated and are refractory to some basic interventions. And when I say basic interventions, I mean, you know, getting them intubated, decompressing their chest, giving them a unit of blood and, you know, doing all of the kind of basic things that that, that would simply yield a survivor, because putting a a balloon catheter up, as we've seen with RUBOA, does not come for free, um, and and therefore it's somebody who's refractory to these um, simple measures.
4: Yeah, I, I I think that's that's true. I mean, it, the reality is that when we start talking about using really aggressive endovascular extracurricular perfusion therapies, things like ECMO and stuff like that, these are really resource intensive. They are also expensive and potentially lead to expensive hospitalizations. We have to be somewhat thoughtful about how we use these. Now, that said, um, defining those patients, either medical or trauma, in some ways, I'm not sure trauma is really easier, other than if it is actually an acute injury and an otherwise healthy individual. Someone who was completely healthy before this incident, this trauma, and uh, you can get to them in a time critical fashion, and they don't have a massive head injury that's going to lead them to uh, to to have you know essentially no hopes of neurological recovery. Those are patients that would seem to be potential um, candidates for SAP. And one argument would be is if you're if 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 they're if they're crashing impending cardiac arrest or going to a cardiac arrest and you are going to try to resuscitate that patient, then, well, I mean, that seems like it's probably a reasonable thing to, to, to attempt. For the medical cardiac arrest side, a lot of people are, are anxious about the idea of um, putting people on ECMO because once you put somebody on ECMO, you're, you have a good chance of getting return circulation and they're likely to be on it for a period of days or weeks. And so the question of resource outlay and is an appropriate use of resources. I, 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 we have not really defined the medical cardiac arrest group yet. Um, they probably the, the criteria will be somewhat similar to those that are um, that are being considered for ECMO. The potential benefit of SAP is that because it's not all the way to full VA ECMO, um, potentially it could be used maybe a little earlier, or maybe with a little uh, with maybe not quite so tight um, inclusion criteria. To see if it works quickly, and if it works quickly, fine. The thing, the one thing about SAP is that if you perfuse somebody get return circulation that are relatively stable, you can pull the catheter and pull the introducer and you're done um, in an hour or within two hours or something like that. If you put somebody on VA ECMO with the really large arterial and venous cannulae, that's not gonna end in an hour. I mean, they're, they're at a minimum, they probably have to go to the OR and have a uh, decannulation. And chances are, if you've gone to the trouble of putting in those large cannulas and have them on ECMO, VA ECMO, full body, you're probably going to give them a period of many hours to a few days to determine what's happening so that's sort of again where it's it's sort of in between the basic acls of the things we do in present day versus going all the way to full va ecmo for a period of several days it for bridges those two
5: i think the resource implications cannot be underestimated um you know i had a, a case a few months ago it was penetrating trauma in an extremity Um, and and this kind of sits in my mind because I've never seen somebody with a ph so low this was a sadly a a kid who was shot attended an outside hospital arrested uh, got a tourniquet on and uh, was resuscitated with just closed chest uh, CPR and he came to us with a ph of 6.5 I mean I've never seen anything quite like it and I kind of you know hummed and hard but he was you know, following commands. So we pressed on with his care, and my goodness, he had every organ system under the sun that failed. Um, you know, turned bright yellow when his, you know, with his shocked liver. Um, you know, his kidneys weren't working. His GI tract just looked horrendous on various CT scans, and um, yeah, that really uh, struck me as to the power of hemorrhagic shock in the setting of a young person who is resuscitatable. If we can take some of these critically unwell patients that right now thoracotomy is ineffective because of the unfavorable hemodynamics and we set up favorable hemodynamics with SAP and we get ROSC, that is going to generate um, a cohort of patients that have, you know, that have catastrophic physiology and require, you know, I think we've, we have to be ready for that um, in terms of the burden of organ support. and And we're going to need... New organ support therapies, as as well, uh, to to meet moving that burden of mortality from early on in their journey to to later.
4: Yeah, and I and I, th- I think John is absolutely right, and I I think it's it's one of the reasons why getting into the field and doing this as early as possible before that ischemic debt is so high maybe gives patients a better chance of actual survival.
5: Oh, a hundred percent. Um, I think that's a great point because I think that if you do this in, in delayed patients. Um, like I would kind of uh, argue that I can get some semblance of ROSC in most patients that are assisted of thoracotomy, some semblance of cardiac activity with, if, if you do enough in terms of restoration of volume, aggressiveness of CPR, drugs, etc. you can usually get a wiggle out of the left ventricle, uh, you know, and it's awful to, to describe things in those terms. And, and that's, you know, in patients profoundly shocked with a with, with a downtime of some description. If we don't pick the sap population properly, and if we decide that we're gonna do this in hospital, because that's where we have all of the resources, et cetera, we may end up failing because um, we've because of that warm ischemic time. And when actually, if, if we push this thing out from day one to the pre-hospital environment, we are setting ourselves up for success, because that's where we have the shorter ischemic time. Um, so I think, I think that's a, that's a really great point. And I think that when it comes down to designing the trials, I think one has to race to the shortest ischemic time possible.
1: Along those lines, you guys mentioned briefly, um, kind of devastating neurologic injury. I'm just really curious, does, the perfusion via the SAP catheter change your cerebral perfusion pressure? Do you ever see like stroke? I, I realize we're getting a little into the lab stuff too now. Do these patients ever have stroke outcomes or um, those kinds of things? Or, you know, do you see implications on neurologic outcome for these models or these patients if they've gotten SAP resuscitation?
5: Um, I, we've been doing some stuff in, in, in my lab with CT perfusion. Um, and CT perfusion is is all about your bolus of iodine transiting the circulation and then the area under the curve tells you what's happening in terms of transit time of your bolus your transit time of your blood pool and from that you can work out your cerebral blood flow um and and what's interesting is uh, cpr is a, just a waste of time when it comes to the brain um, and to my mind you know although my lab hasn't you know validated the paramedic 2 trial it it, it it really resonates with with the with the outcome from that, where that that, that was a trial where they randomised um, epinephrine uh, or, or or not, um, and hey, presto they created a lot of survivors that were not neurologically intact. And I guess what I'm building to is you can salvage somebody from a cardiac perspective, but not from a brain perspective. We've done a we've kind of developed the CT perfusion protocol where we give a um, intra uh, aortic uh, injection. Um, and then um, time our scan over kind of 30 seconds uh, in order to get a snapshot of brain perfusion during some of these resuscitative interventions. So, very different to the conventional venous injection um, CTP. And, you know, the brain, it's very, it's, it's very telling with um, CPR, the brain is, is, you know, you see some flecks of, of color, but with SAP, it lights up. Now, it's not normal but you are getting a perfusion of the brain, um, with, with SAP. So I think I do think that that dramatically changes cerebral perfusion. We haven't, and I think, you know, this is something that Jim and I've talked about a lot in terms of the next phase of animal work is going to be to characterize the effect on organ function of non-cardiac organs of which the brain, I think is, is kind of number one on the list.
4: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, the, the only, I was only able to do relatively limited stuff with related, related to the brain in my laboratory, partly because of when I was working on this and the technology was available to assess the brain at the time. And uh, I mean, it's, it, when I did like color um, color microscope flows for the myocardium, it's called supernormal flow. I did not see supernormal brain flow, and it's understandable because may, if the heart's typically perfuse during diastole and you can perfuse it continuously, of course, you can really it like gangbusters but um, the brain does not get as good a perfusion but it's clearly much better than cpr um is that enough to actually keep the brain or enough to keep the brain alive i guess is the question the hope is yes that it it does but we don't really have that fully characterized yet and the beauty of right now is that um uh dr morrison's lab has the technology the capability to really dive down into some of these these questions much more clearly get better data and help refine how we try to do SAP in order to optimize the the, the brain perfusion. Because I, I, I think we've done enough to show that yes, you can get the heart beating again with SAP, but can we get the brain to survive? Can we get the good neurologic recovery? And that's really the most important thing.
5: There's been the emergence of some interesting data about hyper oxygenating brain injuries and how that is associated with the Um, outcome or or a worse outcome and that's one of the interesting things where uh, you know we've kind of talked about this in very much in hydraulic terms uh, where you know you can deliver higher pressure to the brain and undoubtedly that is going to mess with also regulation various things but we I think uh, acknowledge that some perfusion is better than no perfusion squirting hyperoxygenated blood I think we genuinely have equipoise as to whether or not what we're giving in current SAP recipes uh, of a you know bolus of ten mils um, ten mils per kilogram per minute for for a couple of minutes, whether that formula is the right formula, and that it might be for the heart, but it may not be for the brain, and um, especially because the you, the oxygen tension of blood after it whizzes through uh, an oxygenator is huge, you know, um, you know three four hundredths, um, which which may in fact be damaging because you do have a brain injury there, you've got an ischemic brain injury. So um, yeah, I, I, I personally genuinely have equipoise, um, you know, and part of me has uh, wondered, you know, do we actually need to put the, the SAP catheter further around so that we're just perfusing the coronaries and, and we race to salvage the coronaries and then back the balloon off and get cerebral perfusion. So there's a whole world of, of questions and, and adjustments that one can do to that.
4: I was going to say, it's, it's interesting when you mentioned pushing the, the, the catheter all the way forward and just perfusing the coronaries and stuff. That's actually something that around the time I started first, sort started describing and working on TAP, uh, Max Harry Weil, a legendary cardiac arrest uh, uh, researcher, was trying to do that. And the, the biggest problem I think he ran into, and I kept asking Max about this, was, how do you manage to get the balloon just between the aortic valve and the, and the right brachiocephalic because that's a very short distance and it would take some sort of imaging technology. The point is right. Actually, I'll Peter Saffer actually had a two balloon catheter, one that would go just above the coronary and then the other so you could actually perfuse differentially the heart and the brain. The, the problem is the practicality of being able to do this really, really fast and get a catheter in, in place. But still, the point is, it, it, Johnny's point's right. My hope is that I, I, I'm going to speculate here. I do not have data on this. I'm going to speculate that if we can figure out what kind of perfusion regimen and what sort of oxygen dosing, so to speak, will actually best um, uh, allow for neurologic recovery, I'm going to guess that that's sufficient to get the heart beating again. But we, but, but if we focus on the brain and get the brain back, even if it takes maybe a little longer or something like that, matter no what, worries. if we can get the heart back at the same time, we place ourselves potentially in the ballpark to win.
3: And it sounds like SAP, you know, has defined winning as, you know, a sustainable heart rhythm and a functional brain, of course, not this wiggle in the left ventricle, which is great. Uh, I think some of the things you've mentioned make me think of, you know, do you see an endovascular continuum for our our patients where it may not be, you know, SAP all or nothing, but, uh, you know, a profound shock patient gets a balloon in the aorta. And then once the arrest happens, they get the balloon in the flow. And then ultimately maybe even you know ECMO is on immediate recovery um, and if you know all of these uh, you know technologies can work together
5: yeah I, I think seeing it as a toolkit i think that is absolutely the the right way to do it um, you know this notion that having uh, arterial access that will lo- allow you to facilitate uh, passive afterload support with reboa through to active afterload support with uh perfusion technique like sap through to then you know, in, in many ways, if you're unsuccessful with SAP, but you feel that you've still got a salvageable patient, you've actually got uh, a tool that has isolated your head and neck circulation that allows you to deliver a cold bolus, and you could actually cool somebody um, really quickly uh, using that. Um, so I think that all of these things are are toolkits, um, and then obviously we get into the exciting world of of just using it as your arterial cannula in um, ECMO. And um, so I think that you can bolt all this together. The Problem is, I think that all of the other organ system dysfunction that comes with this, uh, you know, and we see that it's wrong to say all the time, but with with patients that we've really been on the cusp of salvageability, the coagulation cascade dysfunction that you see in the coagulopathy and all of that is is going to be the real challenge is, is actually, I think, going to be the frontier, because I think we have all of the tech to do this. And we're now starting to be able to put it together. But I think the body's very much going to have the last say in this um and 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 maybe um the use of endovascular techniques where we have to do less chest opening is going to help us in that regard i don't know
4: yeah i I agree with that and and uh, i I like the this concept of it being an endovascular extracorporeal toolkit and my my personal sort of notion of this or 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 vision is, is that we escalate to the, it, rapidly we rapidly escalate to the level of care that an individual patient needs but no further than that because it, it, whatever we do whatever we need to in order to get return circulation and try to stabilize the patient but not go beyond that if they don't need full va ecma we don't want to go there because that brings certain costs both financial and also in terms of complications Um, If a patient does not need SAP to get return circulation and survive, fine, that's great with, you know, do they just need roboa, do they just need an arterial line and some careful management? The whole concept of escalating to the needs of the individual patient, tailoring care on an individual basis is, I think, where we want to go. And having a toolkit that gives you options and enough experience to understand when you go from one option, where do you start and which option do you go to next if things don't work? Um, and applying that is, uh, I see that as the future of resuscitation to get optimal results.
5: You're uh, going to need a bigger helicopter, Jim, uh, if you're going to have all this uh, inventory that you need to uh, switch out cannulas and go from one technique to another.
4: Um, well, I'm, I'm seeing where they've got helicopters that are trying to figure out how to set it, put a CT scanner in it. So right now, I'm not even close to having to have a CT scanner, or an MRI in a helicopter. So, but you're right.
1: I think that brings up a really um, interesting next point, And it's a nice segue before we dive into maybe what you, what is your guys' favorite part of the actual science behind all of this really fast, where clinically is this going? Do you think, do you see a randomized control trial coming in the near future? Is that something
5: realistic? Oh my goodness. I have so many thoughts on that because I think that historically we have entered into innovation um, badly where there's been a bunch of folk that have sat around and thought, oh, this is a cool thing. Let's do this. And then they're going to throw it into some patients. They're going to torture their their statistics to be able to show whatever they want. And, you know, I think that there's actually a very clear guidance on how to introduce a complex intervention. And there's, there's the ideal framework, which this notion of having a deliberately staged introduction, where you've got to start with some pilot data in um, a couple of enthusiastic centers that that are uh, you know that have the um research infrastructure and the appetite to be able to do this um but I think the minute that once the technique is refined, you then have to seriously start thinking about um doing it in a in a trial situation where you actually have randomization and I think unlike Reboa, which I think. Full disclosure, I think we've done a terrible job with Ruboa. You know, nobody's any the wiser as to who you should put this in and all of our data's retrospective propensity score tortured uh, misery. Um, I I think the good news with SAP is that because it's cardiac arrest, your alternatives mean um, that I think most IRBs, you know, will will view any therapy that can take a, a, a current survival rate of point, whatever it is to something a little bit higher is, is massive gains. So I actually think SAP is ripe for a proper trial. Uh, the problem is the minute that you mention the word trial, the costs seem to explode. You then run into the issues of consent and community consent because none of these patients uh, you know, are going to be in a, in, in a situation. You know I, I approached the FDA and asked them this after we developed a, an open chest SAP um, technique. And, um, you know, they were like, well, we disagree that somebody with, uh, with the absence of a heartbeat is dead. And I was like, well, I mean, we can just argue that all day, every day. But there we go. Um, so, so that's kind of my view. I think that we have to be really careful not to screw this up, especially if, um, if, if the consequences of getting it right open up uh, another can of worms in terms of organ support.
4: Yeah, uh, it just, it, I mean, sort of broadly, if you look at what has happened in cardiac arrest resuscitation research, um, there's a, there was a large um, uh, study called the, the Resuscitation um, I- Initiative from the NIH called the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. And uh, they did a whole bunch of studies, and, and there were some wins, but a lot of it didn't work, and there was, I think you were trying to be too inclusive initially in the randomized trials. And I think one of the things that uh, a, 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 um, a very thoughtful and revered resuscitation researcher named uh, Dr. Myron Weisfeld um, pointed out is that when you start with something like this, you have to actually define your patient population in the initial study or in the initial clinical cohort very carefully so that you actually get a signal. And say, yes, you've got patients who will benefit from this um naturally you want to get people in as much as possible you want to get data as fast as possible but the most important thing is show that there's a signal and then carefully and thoughtfully expand the indications after that to determine who's going to really benefit otherwise you can kill a technology really really fast or a a new therapy anything drug or anything so i i think that john's right is one of the things that maybe helps a little bit as far as sap is if we say we're going to do sap in cardiac arrest patients that is certainly easier to define than which hypotensive trauma patient, you want to put a roboa catheter in. Um, but still, even with that, you don't want to start throwing this in every cardiac arrest patient because you're going to have a lot of bad outcomes and you may lose your signal. And the first thing we need to do is actually figure that out. Let's, let's see that there is a patient population that we can help with this. And then let's carefully, methodically study it after that and refine that and expand it as we can.
5: There's a whole world of fascinating adaptive trial designs um, you know, Bayesian um, statistics and and various things that that can change approaches to the conventional, what I would call cardiology drug trial, like, you know, the kind of ISIS trials where you throw 100,000 patients in one group and 100,000 patients in another group. That's just not practical for these sorts of complex uh, interventions. And I think that we really are going to be dependent upon proper clinical trialists who have, you know, access to adaptive trial designs where Um, you know, patients presenting in a cardiac arrest, if that is for um, a central nervous, you know, devastating central nervous system injury, that they don't get included. Um, But you may end up, um, what what I'm trying to say is cardiac arrest mimics from um, non-exsanguination pathologies. If if, if you want to talk about a trauma population, you want to make sure that you are capturing the, the right patients. And as Jim says, you don't dilute your signal.
2: From a placement perspective, are there any patients that you found would be excluded besides those that would be excluded for reboa placement?
5: You know, I think that with all of these things where you raise the pressure in the in the arch uh, penetrating, um, you know, upper extremity and neck injuries, I, I think that SAP would have the, 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 the amazing potential to make all of that so much worse. Um, I, I also think incompetent aortic valves. These are all problems, you know, and you know, blunt thoracic aortic injury where you've got a contained hematoma, you know, these things all have potential to go wrong. However, I think that if you have some of these pathologies and you've arrested, then there is going to be, uh, it's gonna be difficult sifting through these patients and and there is going to be a consequence. There are gonna be some patients that are not suitable that will be exposed to this technique without doubt. And will that change outcome? Probably not. Uh, But yeah, um, so yeah, scrupulous data collection.
4: I I agree. I mean, clearly if you have a patient, say for example, with penetrating trauma above the level of the diaphragm, which would be above the level of the balloon, the sap perfusion is not going to be, it's probably not going to be as effective as it would be uh, underneath. On the other hand, if they're actually in a cardiac arrest, it's sort of an argument that says you're going to try to resuscitate them, you're probably not going to hurt them with that, you're just probably not going to help them. Um, we, we have done just a few experiments where I actually looked at a pericardial tamponade model, which was actually sort of fascinating because um, we uh, did a hemorrhagic shock and then a large pericardial tamponade put the uh, heart in a systole. And just we're going to see if we, if we did sap perfusion, would we at least get enough perfusion in the heart that when we release the tamponade that we might be able to get the heart beating again. Interestingly, what we found by leaving the tamponade in place but doing sap, we actually got the heart beating again. It was beating even despite the tamponade. And it sort of makes sense because the reason your heart stops beating in tamponade is it can no longer fill, it can no longer perfuse itself and it just stops. Well, if you extracorporeally perfuse the heart, uh, you may actually get the heart beating again, um, even with that large tamponade sitting there. Now, that said, that was just a few experiments, not much to it. What about lung injury? What about like the carotid injury, all this sort of thing, uh, you know, a ruptured a, a, a uh, thoracic aorta? Oh, boy, especially if it's free blown that seems like game over. But, you know, the, these are things that we still need to investigate in a laboratory setting and see is there some way that we can potentially use these. And I guess... A lot, some of this, despite our laboratory stuff, we're not going to figure out some of this or fine tune it until we get into the clinical setting and start to see from our clinical experience, how do we need to change things? How do we need to refine things? We'll learn a lot from when we finally start putting this in humans.
5: Yeah, I think, I think we're now at the point where, you know, you can come up with questions all day. I think now it's the time just to get off the fence and do this. You know, I, I find it, the the story of the original cardiopulmonary bypass, fascinating. Um, you know, there's a great book, I think it's called A Beautiful Heart, uh, which which kind of tells the story of um, Gibbon and his cardiac bypass machine. And, you know, call the early outcomes. I mean, sounded devastating, massive air emboli and, uh, you know, all kinds of horrendous coagulopathy problems and various things. But we wouldn't have what we have today in terms of cardiac surgery if people weren't prepared to blaze the trail. Um and it's a, you know it's a real dilemma as to how to do this, but you know I think the benefit of cardiac arrest is you're taking somebody who has very limited options and giving them an option.
3: So it's something that that stuck with me after you know seeing it was there was a, you know an open chest in the swine model and this heart was either in V fib uh, model or uh, completely you know empty and asystolic, and the the SAP was introduced and then you you get ROSC and, and you know it's quite, you know, breathtaking the first time you see it. And it's, you know, it's amazing. I don't know if you're numb to it with all the work you've done with it, but can you explain what is happening there in, in terms of what you've seen in the lab and, and how you, you're restarting the heart with this technology and how that compares in a physiologic uh, basis to open cardiac massage or closed cardiac massage?
5: Well, the, uh, the thing that, that, that really, uh, that I never tire of is seeing the changes uh, that occur in the heart, and that you've got this, um, especially if the heart's empty. The color of it is very particular, um, and I'm not good when it comes to to picking colors of wallpaper and various things. But even I can see um, the color change that happens when you when you um, deliver uh, your sap bolus and you start to perfuse the heart. And what's happening is you are raising the pressure in your aorta. You have your balloon up so that you're not losing pressure and volume down into uh, your aortic runoff in terms of your viscera and your lower extremities so you're excluding this the uh, the lower extremity circulation um so all the blood is is largely going head and neck and and coronaries um and that means that you're then getting blood entering into your um coronary circulation and you're washing out all of the nasties and you're delivering oxygen to uh, your um, myocardium and that to my mind is creating the hemodynamic circumstances where the muscle is optimally perfused Um, and I think then when you either shock the heart or um, or even spontaneously your contraction is then vigorous and because you've got the best of molecular circumstances for the heart to contract unlike when you obtain ROSC in the setting of open cardiac massage, where you've cross clamped the aorta and then you've pushed on the heart, because even that is traumatizing. And we've all seen the kind of petechial hemorrhaging that you see um, in the myocardium and, and also the feel of it, that kind of woody feel that you get when you're doing CPR. Um, uh, you, you don't get that with SAP. So I think that, that SAP is less traumatic. Um, it sets your myocardium into a position where it wants to contract. And then when the contraction comes, it is more vigorous um, and then you don't get into the spiral of poor cardiac output, uh, perpetuation of whole body shock. Um, and then, you know, further reduction in pH, protein dysfunction, your, uh, you know, calcium uh, handling in the heart then goes all skew with, and then you end up back in um, cardiac arrest with an agonal rhythm. Um, I think SAP puts you into the best of circumstances to, to try and retrieve that and have a sustained contraction.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I just I, I without having being able to actually study what's happening to uh, ATP stores in the myocardial, you know, and in the, in the mitochondria in the, in the heart and stuff. Like that, I just have this vision of as you're perfusing, you're washing you're watching out the waste products, you're providing substrate, you're providing oxygen, and you're giving the uh, mitochondria the tools that they need to restore ATP levels and stuff so that you can actually get the engine running again.
5: Yeah, we've we've done some interesting kind of pressure volume loop stuff with uh, Reboa and uh, putting a pressure volume loop catheter into the left ventricle and kind of how i characterize Reboa is um you're uh using the, the petrol in your your in, in your car to go further but you're ruining the engine in the process um, in that you are you know taxing the heart reasonably significantly when you suddenly have next to no afterload and then all of a sudden you you really put the afterload up um, sap i think intrinsically helps that meet that oxygen demand of, of that extra work that the ventricle has to do because you're delivering such a well-oxygenated uh, perfusate to your coronary circulation. And I also think just moving volume through and, and pushing out um, stuff that is deoxygenated, acidotic, um, you know, that, that that isn't good to have sitting in your uh, coronary capillaries is, is, is also good just to push that, that out. And and I think if if I'm you know just gotta seize on Megan's point, she wanted some, you know, she wanted some science. So here we go. I think the one thing that I think with SAP that is is kind of unexplored is, you know, we kind of, you know, Jim and I have, have kind of been pushing um, you know, whole blood. Jim's got extensive experience with with non um whole blood oxygen carriers, H box and, and and various things. I think the cool bit is the drug piece where if you isolate that circulation, you can give drugs that will benefit the coronary circulation that you would never give in, in trauma. And, and I'm thinking about, for example, um, uh, you know, um, you know, if if you want to give nitrates, uh, sorry, um, uh, nitrates to, um, you know, vasodilate and improve, um, blood flow to your myocardium to increase your O2 flux. You would never give um nitrates to a trauma patient cardiac arrest for all of the issues of vasodilation, et cetera, et cetera. But if you get isolation of your coronary circulation, that may in fact, you know, you can give you know quite significant levels that you don't see um spreading to the to the rest of your systemic circulation because you've isolated your your head and neck. So that that would be my pitch.
4: And yeah. I, I guess the, the thing I hope I will still have time to work on in the laboratory if I can just live long enough and still have functional brain for a long enough period of time, is I would really like to move into using SAP as a platform for delivering some sort of pharmacologic cocktail that can help limit the ischemic injury, um, stabilize membranes, uh, prevent or limit uh, reperfusion injury, because you can deliver it and one of the big questions is, do you deliver that at the same time that you deliver the oxygenated perfusate, or do you, for a few seconds before, do you actually deliver it beforehand? There's just a lot of questions about what can be done pharmacologically to help uh, stabilize the heart and the brain and other organs, and um, I hope that that science is coming along. If we can get somebody to fund it for us, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that and try to sort that out and add that to the, uh, the, the whole dead you know, technique of perfusion.
5: Yep, for all the listeners out there, we take Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, <laughs> <laughs> the DODs listening.
3: So I'm convinced. I don't, definitely what Megan is. And... Yeah. I don't know about Megan and Lauren, but I'm convinced that this is a technology that, that I'm excited about.
1: Yeah, yeah Absolutely. It it's really does sound like the best of all of the worlds, the best of the Reboa catheter, the best of ECMO, and it its pre-hospital potential is really exciting. Um, and you're right. This is at the extreme of life where we really have no other option. And so how cool. And especially if it's actually changing things at a cellular level. And I think thinking about the flow and the pressure relationship, I think, is actually even for my non-physics, not science brain, is a really interesting concept. So thank you guys so much for this amazing talk. I have learned so much myself, and I, I'm, I'm equally as excited about all of this.
4: I'll, I'll, I'll just end by saying, because people ask me, well, you've been talking about this for Well, where is it? And the, uh, the the answer, unfortunately, is it is slowly working its way through an FDA regulatory process. And unlike, say, Roboa, where there were you could use for a boa before the more recent ones, and ECMO, which was out there for other purposes. Uh, this technique's not been out there so that it could be repurposed for um, sort of off label. It's, it's a brand new technique, and therefore, he has to go through the FDA regulatory process before we can try it for the first time in a human being. Or, as I tell people, if I try to do it before that, I'll probably wind up in Leavenworth, which is not a good idea. So, um, it, it, it's, it's, we're working through it. We hopefully will start clinical trials. Or at least some human work, maybe in the next year.
2: Awesome. That was going to be my work. question: is where we go from here? Because, you know, with Reboa, it's seen all different re—I uh, don't know—reintroductions. But yeah, is it something you kind of try and just say it's kind of like the reboa but different and use it, or I guess you have to go through all the regulations?
5: Yeah. The, the piece we've encountered is the minute you have an oxygenator um, in a circuit it falls into the world of perfusion, Um, and then that has a different world in terms of the staff that you require to to work that sort of circuit. So there's a a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's some nuance to it. I think, I I personally think the way that a pilot study should be done in in trauma patients is as an adjunct to resuscitative thoracotomy, open chest, sap, and we we published a techniques paper in the Journal of Trauma last year, and that that kind of highlights a way of doing that where you just use existing cannulas, and um, you know, cannulate your your arch rather than do uh, open chest CPR. And I, I don't know if that is something that can be used to kind of blaze the trail. And, and then as technology is refined and we have a dedicated catheter and, and all of that good stuff, you know, the, the, the actual trial can be organized. That's the dream.
2: Another question is who else is doing this? Is are you guys the guys? Or are there other people working on it?
5: Oh no, there's going to be somebody that's going to pull out a ready-to-go prototype and and you know, you know, you know have it, have it have the nature paper, uh, you know, and we'll be you know, open, it will die, <laughs> you know, and and be be surprised by all this. I I, I don't know. I mean, certainly, um, you know, there's um, James Ross at Oregon has been a collaborator with um, uh, Jim uh, and myself. Um, I, I'm unaware of, of others, um, but I, I, there's, there's gotta be folks out there.
4: And, and I, I guess maybe the hope is that with time, if we can show that there's benefits, if there are lots of questions to be answered and if other laboratories wind up being interested in this and help advance the science on it, I mean, I'm, I'm getting old enough to look at the big picture. I just wanna to try to save people's lives. And if, it, if, we, if we have more people working on this and sorting this out and moving it forward faster, then all the better. Agreed.
2: Awesome. I think that's all our goal. And I will say as a plug, this is uh, National Trauma Survivors Month, and we're all just trying to do it for the care of the injured patient. So we appreciate your time. And I hope we hear more about this in the uh, next coming year.
5: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah,
4: thank
1: you guys so much.
3: Yeah, thank you for your your time today and all your hard work over decades.
0: That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, Remember, all you need to do is look to the east.